0: Let me ask you to think for a moment. For some, this may not exactly apply, but you'll catch on to what I'm talking about here very quickly. For those of you been are married in this room, stop and think about the moment when you fell in love. For some, I understand you're thinking back a long time. Stop and think about the moment when you fell in love. Guys, you remember how you gushed over her? Remember how you bought her flowers? How you took her on dates? The ladies don't start throwing elbows. Some guys think back, they say, I can remember when I did that, and some wives are thinking, yeah, I wish he was still kind of doing that. Remember how you wanted to share every moment with him and thought he was the best man on earth. There's no one else that could possibly compare. I mean, that time of dating and falling in love with you, most of us have been there. And at some point, you decide to get hitched, you decide to settle down, tie the knot, you decide to get married. We make great plans for that wedding day, don't we? We think about the day and the day that's coming. For some who are just recently married, you spend a lot of time preparing and thinking about that day is coming. Do you know the average wedding day couples are spending $10,000? Preparing for that day. What will it be like? What's the cake going to be like? Who am I going to invite? What will the service be like? What kind of dress am I going to wear? What will the groomsmen wear? What kind of talks do we have? What, I mean, lots of questions and lots of things to figure out. We spend months and months and months and sometimes even years planning for that one big day. But what about the days to follow? What about the months to follow? What about the years to follow? What kind of preparation takes place for that? I mean, many times we spend all the time and energy and money preparing for that one day, and we don't think about the days that are come after. Unfortunately, we get caught up preparing for the wedding that we actually forget to prepare for the marriage. Did you hear about the pastor who was visiting a 4th grade Sunday school class to talk about marriage as part of the lesson? He asked the class, what does God say about marriage? As any 4th grade boy would do, he popped up and replied, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Did you know what you were doing when you were getting married? I mean, for some, we think we had it all figured out. This is going to be a great day. I've got it. It's going to be a piece of cake. So many of us actually went into marriage rather blind, and I think rather clueless. Quite possibly, you once were in love, but now, now you'd rather go out with the guys than with your girl. Quite possibly, now the only flowers that you buy are when you're putting some in the flower garden at your home. Now maybe the only dates involved in your life are those shriveled up pieces of fruit stuck in the back of the refrigerator nobody wants to eat. I mean, what's been happening lately in your marriage? If you were to spend another minute together, it might end up being your, your last minute. And that's where some people are living today. Yeah, we're in the same house, but let's stay in, the same, let's stay in separate rooms. Let's stay away from each, each other. Marriage is complicated. It's not easy. And anyone who tells you it is easy, they're lying to you. Most in this room have been impacted one way or another by divorce. Maybe you've been divorced. Possibly your parents have been divorced. Maybe someone close to you has been divorced. Marriage is under attack in America today. And now we've been on a series, God on Film... Today's the last Sunday of that, and I'm supposed to make a tie to the movie Aloha. We chose the movies, some before we even got a chance to see them, just reading up what they're going to be about. And i got to tell you, when I started reading the on Aloha, the reviews are terrible, and so I never went and watched it. I said, what a waste of time. And as I read the reviews, basically what it boils down to is an attack on marriage. A guy who moves back to Hawaii, who starts to have an interest in a lady who's been married, who he used to have interest years ago, and so he affects her marriage while he has a fling with another woman. But I don't have time to spend a lot of time talking about that movie because we've got to talk about God's Word this morning. And Jesus' words don't make it any easier in our text today. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, as we've been walking through this Sermon on the Mount. And we look at these words. Remember, Jesus is raising the bar. He raises the bar on murder. He says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder. And he raises the bar and says that even if you have hatred in your heart, it's like murdering somebody. And he raises the bar on adultery. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you no one who looks at a woman lustfully. He raises the bar that says that even those thoughts in your mind is committing adultery. And again, he raises the bar here because he says it has been said. Verse 31. Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As I deal with this text today, let let me first say a couple things. I want to say this with all the compassion I possibly can. For those of you in this room that have been divorced, and if stats are true, there's maybe 50% of people who have walked through that some time in this room. My purpose today is not to heap condemnation on you. It's not my goal. I don't want you walking out of here feeling like I was just beat up. I know from walking with many couples through marriage trials and hardships, And some that decided to go down the path of divorce, I know that it is extremely, extremely painful. Matter of fact, when you look at stressor scales, uh, as psychologists put together the biggest stressors and the hardest, most painful situations in life, they rank life situations. Number one is death. Number two is divorce. It's a very painful experience. and And I understand that. I know some of you made mistakes, and if you could go back, you would maybe go back and say, I would redo some things differently. So I'm not trying to stir up pain, not trying to make anybody feel guilty. What I want to do is I want to encourage you to do, and what I want to encourage you to do is a look at Scripture with a mindset that says, from this point forward, because what we can do sometimes we can look in the rearview mirror and we hold on that and let it beat us up and that's Satan's tricks and sometimes we got to look in the rearview mirror and go okay I kind of had a mistake I messed up there was sin in my life but let me look from this point forward so wherever you're at in your journey with God wherever you're at in your marriage I want you to look at today's scripture with a mindset that says from this point forward we can't do much about what's happened in the past can we can't change our past. But as we understand God's Word, we want to look from this point forward. Now, if you haven't been married, you're single. You're a young person in the room. Listen in closely. This is the time to learn what I'm going to teach you today. See, many of us don't learn this, and then we enter into marriage, and we don't understand it. So if you're a young person, teenager, you're, you're an elementary student, listen in closely. God has a plan for marriage And if you understand it from His perspective, and you pursue His perspective, marriage can be wonderfully magnificent. And so I want you to hear that today. I want to encourage you to look forward. In order to fully understand this passage, though, I believe we need to have a good understanding of marriage from Scripture. Allow me to walk through biblical marriage and then come back to this passage about divorce because sometimes we get stuck in that passage and people will ask, Pastor, am I allowed to have a divorce? When can I get a divorce? What does all this mean? And I think it's the wrong questions. And I think they're the wrong questions because we don't understand what God's desire is for marriage. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 when God established marriage. Adam was alone. Remember, God created heavens and the earth and all that came with that. And then he created man. He created Adam. And here's what the scripture says. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Without getting too sidetracked, let me just point out the obvious in the text that we see in Genesis. It says one man and one woman. And our culture today, obviously we know that's under attack. A marriage that is under Christ, under God, involves one man and one woman. It does not involve two women. It does not involve two men. Not the purpose of the message to go down that road, but I want us to draw and notice that attention to Scripture. They become one flesh. In the original language, the word one means to be united. It means all together. It means completely joined as one. And the two will be united. They'll become one. They'll be joined. They'll be completely all together would be the way to more accurately read that or interpret that text. I I like the way Solomon said this in his book in Ecclesiastes. He was talking about two And one may become overpowered, but two can stand strong. And he said, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And as you go on and look at that text that Solomon was dealing with, he was dealing with the marriage covenant. And what he's dealing with is when you bring two people together together, How is it a cord of three strands? Get with me for a picture, if you will, that the young couple gets married and they're standing at the altar, and let's say the pastor or the preacher has them turn and stand side by side. And he says, now you stand side by side, and the husband puts his leg down, and she puts hers, and together he says, now you're going to walk together. And so then he ties their legs together to create what would be known like a three-legged walking or a three-legged race. What Solomon is getting here is that when you enter into marriage, you're putting your leg down, she's putting her leg down, and the cord that binds you together is Jesus Christ. That's a biblical marriage. The cord that ties you together is Jesus Christ. And then so together, you walk step in step in oneness in Jesus Christ. And what the problem is, is when he says, no, I want to go do things my way, and she says, no, I want to go do things my way, forgetting that you're tied together by Christ, it makes you fall over. It makes things get unstable, and you're no longer unified. And sometimes you can break that cord because you're not focused on Jesus. That's Solomon's explanation. Solomon said, when you enter into marriage, you're into something that cannot be broken, a cord of three strands, if you allow God to be that cord, Jesus to be that cord, that ties you together and unifies you as one. God wants to strengthen us in our marriage. He wants to complete us. And Christ wants to be the cord that unites the two so that we can literally become one. When we decide to get married, we're entering into a covenant relationship. If you're taking notes, write this down. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is not a a contract people today all over the world treat marriage like a contract it's a piece of paper yes that's involved it's a legal agreement yes that's involved because of our government and but it's so much more than that <laughs> every time <coughs> every time i've done a wedding Brian and Groom bring this piece of paper and say, Pastor, will you sign this? And we fill out the date and put all the information together, and I make sure I send it in because there's some big old legal thing that if I don't send it in, then I could be arrested and sent to jail and fined, etc., etc. Because our government requires that. But it's so much more than that. See, you can see a great picture of this in the Old Testament book of Malachi. The people are whining asking, God, why won't you answer our prayers? They're praying, where are you, God. And God basically going to say, the men you have been unfaithful to your wives, and therefore I'm not answering your prayers. You can read all the texts in Malachi 2, but I just want to verse, focus in on verse 14. It says, you ask why it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage, get the word, marriage covenant. Not marriage contract, marriage covenant. Covenant, I want you to notice this important part. The scripture says the wife of your marriage covenant, not marriage contract, but marriage covenant. What's the difference? A contract is based on mutual distrust. That's what a contract is. It's the idea that I'm in as far as you are in. Why do we write contracts? Because I'm not sure if you're going to hold up your part of the deal. And so if you don't hold up your part of the deal, here's what you have to do. And if I don't hold up my part of the deal, then here's what I have to do. A contract is written in a way that if I want to get out of it, here's the rules I have to follow. See, if you're renting an apartment, you live under a contract. Basically, however pages that is, four, five, six pages, basically what it says is, if you don't pay, you don't stay. You pay your bill, you're good. (coughs) And there's some other stuff written in there that clarifies, don't destroy my property. (coughs) Excuse me. On the same end though, it says the landlord, you've agreed to provide a place and a place has to be in certain conditions. And if you don't keep those conditions, Mr. Landlord, then I can walk out of this idea and I can get out of the contract. That's a contract. But a lot of people enter into a marriage with that mindset. Well, it's just a contract. If you don't do what I want you to do, then I won't stay. And if you don't do what, you, what I want you, then I'm out of here. Someone breaks the contract, and it's over. You're entering a marriage. And if you've entered a marriage, you don't know this. You need to grasp this idea that a covenant is different. A covenant is based on mutual commitment. It, it's an unending, totally binding commitment, and it can be maintained even by one person. So you may break this, but I'm gonna, not going to break it. My covenant vows before God. <coughs> knowing that I've entered into a covenant, I won't turn on it because I know I've not only entered a covenant with my spouse, but I've entered a covenant with God Almighty. See, what it means is I'm all in. Every part of me, I'm all in. Not 50% in, not 75% in, not 90% in, not 99% in. I'm in... 100%. 100%. I'm giving my covenant vows, not before the state I live in. I'm not giving my covenant vows just before my friends and my family have gathered. I'm giving my covenant vows before God Almighty, before God of heaven. It's not the mindset we carry, though, in America today. And we say things like, poorer, better for worse, sickness is health. I commit to you and in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when you enter into the marriage covenant, you're saying before God. You're making a promise not only to your spouse, you're making a promise to God. It is totally binding, all in, no backdoor covenant to your spouse and to God. And when you do that, divorce is not even an option. It's not even a word in our vocabulary when it comes to marriage. See, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, when you get married, you stand before God and you make a promise to God and you enter into a covenant and the two become one. When you make these vows, you're doing two things. You're leaving and cleaving. You're committing to each other. Marriage must begin with a leaving of all other relationships in order to establish a permanent relationship between one man and one woman. Look at the text again in Genesis 2. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall become one. Marriage begins with cleaving, with leaving, leaving all other relationships. The closest relationship outside of marriage is specified here, implying that it is necessary to leave your father and mother, then, then you certainly should leave all other lesser ties. It must be broken. It must be changed. It must be left behind. Leaving our parents does not mean that we abandon them. It does not mean to leave them in a lurch. The bonds of love with parents, they're lasting ones. However, these ties must change in character, so the man's full commitment and the wife's full commitment now is given to their spouse. A wife's commitment is now to her husband. The Lord gave the man the commandment, and although the principles apply to both, I think the husband sets the example in the home, as a leader in the home. He can no longer be dependent upon his father and his mother. He can no longer be under authority, for now he assumes the headship of his own family. The adult must continue to honor his parents, must continue to care for them when necessary, and assume responsibility for them rather than responsibility to them. And so when you enter into a marriage, you're leaving mom and dad, and now you're responsible to your spouse giving your full commitment to one another. I think that one of the best things that Brian and I did when we first got married is we moved to a different state. We weren't by either one of our parents, and so we had to learn how to make it. We had to learn (laughs) from the father-in-law himself. We had to learn how to make it. And sometimes that's the biggest struggle in some marriages is that the wife is running back to her mom and dad or the husband is running back to his mom and dad and mom and dad are too involved. You're supposed to leave and cleave, leave your parents and cleave to your spouse. And unless you're unwilling to leave everything and anything else, you will never develop the beautiful oneness relationship God intends. Giving your full commitment to each other, husband and wife, means that, that you leave other things. They become lesser priorities. Your business becomes a lesser priority because now your spouse is a higher priority. Your career becomes a lesser priority because your spouse is a higher priori- priority. Your house is now a lesser priority because your, your spouse is a higher priority. Your hobbies Guys become a lesser priority because now your spouse is your highest priority other than God. Your talents, your interests, or moms and dad, your children are a lesser priority. Ouch, that hurts, doesn't it? That's what we do, though, moms and dads. We let our kids take over, and then we forget about our spouse. When you leave and you cleave, sometimes you've got to tell little Johnny or little Susan, hey, listen, mom and dad's more important. But what's happened in American culture today is we revolve our world around all of our children and their activities. And, may I also say, <clears throat> lesser priority is your ministry or your work in the church than your marriage. And by all means, I want you to serve in God's kingdom and God's church. But when that gets in the way of your marriage, then that needs to take a step back. Needs to take a side back so that you can focus on your marriage and who you are in Christ. Think about your vows you made once for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health, till death do us part. That is a serious, radical promise, a covenant. I mean, it's radical because we have no idea what's going to happen after the wedding. guys, you marry the lady. she's five foot seven, she's nice and thin and shaped beautiful hair, and then she gets pregnant and has some kids. Things change. Not going to be the same. And ladies, I know you married your hunk, that he's all worked out and he's all looking good and he has a six pack of abs. It's in there somewhere still. Somewhere. Things change. You don't know what kind of hardships you're going to go through. You don't know what kind of illnesses you're going to go through. And you made a promise before God to stay in the covenant for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. We make our commitment because love is more than an action. It's more action than it is feeling. In our culture, we allow emotions to rule us. We talk about falling in love and we talk about falling out of love just as about as much as falling in a hole and falling out of a hole. Truth is, real love is impossible without commitment. And we're not committed to someone because we love them. We love them because we're committed to them. And for a marriage to sustain itself, you have to work through that sometimes the feelings are not going to be there. They're just not going to be there. Let me give you further detail in this word, in the Hebrew word about this one. It means a cutting. It means a binding agreement. It means a blood covenant. It is more than a contract. It is a blood covenant, and you, you apply this to a marriage. In the old testament, the priest would perform a marriage, they bring two young people together, and part of the marriage ceremony, the priest would ask them to stick out their hand, and they would stick out their hand, and the priest would take a knife and cut across the palm of his hand, and they take a knife and cut across the palm of her hand. Any he volunteers this morning? We don't want to do that, do we? Then he would fold their hands over to one, signifying you're now becoming one. It's a blood covenant. And he would wrap a cord around their hands, signifying you are now one, the cord representing Christ, representing God. We are now one. Now, I've never seen that in a marriage ceremony. But you know, in the New Testament, we still have that beautiful picture that God has established in lovemaking in sexual relationship for the covenant of marriage only. See, in his perfect economy, what happens is the virgin male would consummate after the marriage with the virgin female, and there would be a cutting or a shedding of blood in that process. And it's a picture of the two becoming one. And we destroy that when we have sex outside of marriage. One of the many reasons why this gift of lovemaking is reserved for the idea of the covenant marriage. But what what happens today? See, when we think in a contract mindset, here's how we behave. People see it as a contract, not a covenant. So therefore, we go and we get into relationships because marriage is not that big of a deal. And so we do things kind of like married things, like married people. And many times this starts out at a very young age. As simple as just sharing our hearts, just exposing your life and your hurt and your, and, and your hopes and your dreams of different people. And a young lady meets a young guy and they just start to share their life together and just share their heart just in conversation and, and go so deep in their hearts that their hearts start to connect. And a girl with this cute little boy who she thought she's in love with, the boy says, I'm tired of you. And he says, I'm breaking up. And they move on. And what happens many times is a young lady or a young man will go on and find someone else. They're brokenhearted and they're hurting so much they need to find another relationship to fill that hole. And so they find someone else and they go and they start having those kind of conversations. But they've already had those conversations once before and so that's kind of normal. And so they have those conversations where they share life together, share their hearts together, share their heart hurts together. But then sometimes it goes beyond that and starts to grow into let's start sharing our physical lives together. That means sometimes more activity than needed, especially in a teenager's life in terms of touching and caressing and and kissing that can lead down the road even further. And then that relationship breaks up. And what happens is now I'm kind of used to sharing my heart. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to kind of hold hands. I know what it's like to hug. I know what it's like to kiss. I know that all feels good. And then you enter into another relationship. When you're in another relationship, well, hey, let's share our hearts. That moves fast. Hey, let's start to touch a little bit. That moves fast. Well, what's next? The only thing that's next is enter into the bed together. And so now my toothbrush gets moved to her place and and my shaving stuff is at her place and she brings some stuff to my place. And so now we're starting sharing some nights together and we're entering into bed together because that's where it has grown to because that's what we're used to and I need more to fulfill what's going on inside of me. What happens when we get married later then after practicing this because what you're doing in those relationships is you're practicing Marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce. What happens later, we enter into marriage, and we've been with maybe two people, three people, four people, five people. One day, finally, we walk down that aisle, and we say to God, hey, I want to get married, but we see it as a contract instead of a covenant. If he doesn't please me or she doesn't please me, then I'm out of here. Because that's what we've been raised to do. We go back to that practicing. When things don't work out, we take our toothbrush or our stuff and we go our separate ways. Let me speak to a moment to parents in here. If your kids are in that 10, 12, 15, 16 year old age, the best thing you can do for them is to delay dating as long as you possibly can. It is unhealthy For 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and sometimes even 16 and 17 year olds start entering dating until they have a proper understanding of what that means and what that is. And most teenagers are not mentally mature enough to handle that in the right way. And so we as parents have to teach them how to have relationships with guys and girls that are healthy relationships before we enter into this dating relationship. Not the point of the sermon. I don't have time to go into how do I do that exactly. There's lots of materials out there. If you're like, how, what, what, Brian, what would you recommend? By all means, email me. I'll give you some recommended helps that can help you think through that with your children. But the longer you can sustain and help your children hold off the dating relationship, the chances are you're helping them create a healthy marriage. And we as parents have to be looking out for our children, not just now, but when they're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50. And so the way we train them today may affect what they're doing in their adulthoods. And so parents, I just I warn you, if your kids are at that age and they're thinking about dating, make sure you're doing that in a way that's healthy, that you're thinking about what's that going to mean for their marriage down the road. Because dating today means so much more to their marriage and how they handle it than we realize. Did you know that living together before marriage does not work? That's the norm in our society today. Hey, before we get married, let's try this out. Let's see if it's going to work. And I'll tell you, as a preacher of the gospel, someone who does marriage, does weddings, probably about 90 to 95% of the time when someone comes and says, can we get married, I usually just ask the question, have you been living together? And usually the answer is yes. It doesn't work, though. Any study I've read, whether it be Christian or non-Christian writers, scientists, psychologists, counselors... Any study I read says that for a successful marriage, do not live together ahead of time because the divorce rate among those who live together prior to marriage is above 80%. Above 80%. Most of us enter a marriage going, I want this to last a lifetime. You want it to last a lifetime, then don't enter into that relationship without doing it in God's way, in a proper way. Do you wonder if it works? Psychologists learn it's not. They are learning that actually God's ways work. Marriage is a holy covenant. Now, let's go back to Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount. Having the mindset and the understanding of oneness, having the mindset and the understanding of a covenant relationship, now read Matthew 5, 31 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. God's intention for marriage explains His view on divorce. See, he really wants people to fully enjoy all that life with a mate has to offer and avoid the pain of putting an end to what was meant for a lifetime. That's why he says that he hates divorce. He doesn't say, I hate the people who go through divorce. He says, I hate divorce because he has a better plan. And he knows the pain and suffering that was going on. Jesus was tying him back to the Jewish culture here in this text. Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce in the Old Testament. You say, why, why would Moses allow for a certificate of divorce? Because their hearts were so hard, they didn't want to follow God's ways. And so Moses said, fine, we'll set up a system here, you can get a certificate of divorce. And so what Jesus is dealing with here in the New Testament is their understanding of a certificate of divorce, but they were marrying and divorcing for any kind of reason. I mean, there are, uh, there's accounts and stories that go on that there were some guys divorcing their wives. You made a bad meal, I'm divorcing you. You've changed your looks. I'm divorcing you. I don't like you anymore. I'm divorcing you. And Jesus was elevating marriage going, listen, this is not something to enter into lightly. Throw it out. And now I'll go get a new partner. He says, when you're doing that, you're just entering into adulterous relationships. And it actually ties back to the previous passage of Scripture when he's talking about lust and saying, don't lust. Don't be adulterous like that. So Jesus here is just elevating the fact that when you enter into marriage, make it a high priority don't throw it away. Honor me and the way you live your life. Matthew 19.6 says, So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And that was Jesus. Jesus saying, don't let man separate this. Yes, the court can sign the document and make it happen. Yes, you can, you can try to separate, but let no one separate this. And so in this passage, in the book of Matthew, many people want to get into, when can I? When should I? Am I allowed to enter into divorce? Jesus would say, try your absolute best to never enter into divorce. To never. I like what Ruth Graham said. She's Billy Graham's wife. One time reporters were interviewing her and said, Ruth, have you ever thought about divorcing your husband, Billy? She said, never one day in my life have I thought about divorcing him. I thought about murdering him on many occasions, but never ever divorce. She was committed. I'll stay in this thing until he's gone. Her mindset, <coughs> Her mindset was divorce is not an option. That's the mindset Jesus is trying to teach in this passage divorce is not an option. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how much I don't like him right now, or how much I don't like her right now, the mindset Jesus teaches is divorce is not an option because we've entered into a covenant. And let me just say, husbands and wives, if you ever threaten divorce, it's the worst thing you do to your marriage. If you have ever said something like, you keep that up, I'm going to divorce you. You want to go down to divorce court? You want me to call my lawyer? You make those kind of threats. What you're doing is you're inviting Satan, saying, Satan, hey, come on into my marriage and destroy it. Because as soon as you start speaking those words, Satan grabs your heart and Satan grabs her heart, and he starts twisting and stirring and trying to create havoc and more problems in your marriage. Some things you should never say. Brian, I've been 21, been married for 21 years, and I can honestly tell you I have never said that to her and she has never said that to me. I've never threatened it. We are in the bunker of life together. And when you enter into marriage, you enter into the bunker of life together and you have her back and he has your back and you say, we're going to battle through and we're going to make it through this thing together as one. Let me close with a few thoughts on this idea of marriage and divorce. First of all, God's plan is the best plan. On anything in life, do you agree with that? God's plan is the best plan, and we need to pursue Him. If we want a healthy marriage, pursue Him. Let me, let me illustrate this. I need a couple. I need a married couple to illustrate. Uh, Scott and Jamie, since you're the newest married ones in here, let me pick on you all, okay? I need you guys to go to the back of the room over there. Got to move quick, okay? There you go. Uh, Scott, you come over here to this aisle way over here, and Jamie, you come over here to this aisle way over here, Okay? And just stand in the back. And you'll understand this because we talked about this in your preparation for marriage when we met. Here's the deal. In this world, a couple comes together... And they say, we want to be close. And many times they try all kinds of things that the world teaches to be close. That would be like trying to climb through the rows and the aisles and trying to climb over people and get over their feet to get close. You can try all the world's methods that they teach and try to do that. And you're probably going to trip and fall. You're going to hurt yourself, maybe hurt somebody else as you're trying to do that. Or you can pursue God. Now, let's for pretend. Again, this is pretend. Let's pretend I'm God. <laughs> all right, just for Pretend. Here's what we need to do. Jamie, you start pursuing God. If you pursue God, and Scott, you pursue God, and you guys both chase after Jesus Christ, and you pursue Him individually, and you say, I am going to walk with Him, I'm going to chase after Him, I'm going to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. What just happened? What happened? They came together. They grow in closeness. So I'll, look at you all, like prepared, let's do this again, no we won't. <laughs> uh, go ahead and be seated. Um, what happens is we get trying to chase all the world's ways. You want a marriage to last a lifetime? If the husband is pursuing God and the wife is pursuing God, he's in the middle of that marriage and you'll grow close together. Now, I understand there are times when a wife says, I want that, and she's pursuing God, and he's not. He stays back there, or vice versa. You continue to pursue God and pray for your spouse. Don't nag them. Don't try to correct them. Pursue God and pray for your spouse that they would desire to pursue God. And when they start pursuing God, it will turn out to be the most beautiful thing that will ever happen in your life when you are both are doing that. But still, as you walk closer with God individually, you'll still be closer to your spouse by you pursuing God. Secondly, I want you to get the nothing, absolutely nothing will separate you from the love of God. Amen. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, and I think you could add in there, or even walking through a divorce, will be a separation of from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I said in the beginning, I don't want you walking out of here feeling condemned. If you walk through divorce, you've been through that, by no means walk out of here condemned, walk out of here knowing God still loves me. God still has great plans for me. Walk out of here today thinking, you know what, from this point forward, now that I know this teaching on the Word, this is what I will pursue. From this point forward, this is how I will go. And know that even if you walk through divorce, God does not hate you. He loves you and He loves you deeply and has great plans for you right where you are today. Third, I want you to get this. Forgiveness is possible. Absolutely possible. First John 1.9 says, if We confess our sins. He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all, all unrighteousness. He is faithful and just will forgive us of our sins. And so typically to go through a divorce, there's been some kind of sin involved in that. I want you to know forgiveness is possible. Sometimes what happens is we look in the rearview mirror and we hold on to it and we don't forgive ourselves. You can forgive yourself because Christ has forgiven you. Again, it kind of goes with point number two is look from this point forward. From this point on. God, if I've been through a divorce once, please help me not to do that again. God, if I'm single, help me to choose a covenant relationship in a way that honors you and honors your Scriptures. And so today I pray that you're encouraged and I pray also that you're guided and that you have a plan to say this is what we want our marriage to be a covenant relationship that is one in Christ